This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. talking about God's empowering presence, in other words, the miraculous uh, miracles today, and it, it does feel as if God is doing a, a miracle, not least of which in our hearts, which uh, hopefully my, my opening story will kind of echo as well. Uh, we're, part, we're, we're in our series through the book of Acts. Um, it's not exactly uh, kind of sequentially through the book. We're running a little bit thematically as well. Um, and so it'll be a bit of a balance today as I'm talking through the miraculous. Um, I'm kind of using one particular passage in Acts 3 to sort of expound a bit of the, the theology of all of them uh, and to kind of bring them back to uh, the application for us. Um, but hopefully super helpful, faith-stirring, Help us in our journeys of loving Jesus and knowing Him more. So for those of you who have heard a little bit of my story before, please do forgive me. Um, I grew up in uh, a family that attended church uh, occasionally with my, uh, at the time, culturally Christian parents, but they were still unbelievers uh, at the time. And uh, after school, I actively chose to go my own way. I wanted to avoid this whole churchy business, and um, I felt it was useless and irrelevant to my modern life. And somehow, one night, when I was uh, 22 years old, I went to bed, an unbeliever, and I woke up a believer. I cannot explain it any simpler or more complex than that. Um, I woke up with faith. I went to bed without it, and I woke up with it. And um, it was a crazy two or three weeks after that. I knew enough about the Bible and Jesus to know that I was coming to faith, that something was happening. And literally, overnight, I had a faith that grew about who Jesus is, who I am, that He was the Holy Son of God, and I was so far from holiness, and that He offered forgiveness, and I gratefully accepted it, and all of these emotions were all going on at the same time. It truly was very crazy, and a couple of weeks into this process, I uh, realized I needed to join a church. It was kind of the intrinsic thing to do that a bunch of believers can help me on this journey and keep discovering um, in my faith. And um, it was wonderful. Such a great time of life. A couple of months after joining a church, I had a few friends gather around me and they prayed for me. 
uh, that I would receive a, a fuller experience, an ongoing fullness of the Spirit. And that particular evening was just fireworks and wonderful. Um, and I was baptized uh, in water a few months after that. It was actually on New Year's day or at like midnight, 31st of December. It's quite a cool baptism time, if I have to say so. And, oh man, that first year was just an utter, utter whirlwind. I don't, I don't remember lots about it other than just the huge excitement and the, the sense of the move of God in my life, the sovereign hand of God. And I, I tell you the story because I, I had no preconceived ideas, no preconceived notions about what it meant to become a Christian, what it meant to pursue God or to choose Him daily what a growing fullness of the Holy Spirit meant. I had no clue about any of this stuff. All I can say is that at a point when I was still living as the captain of my own soul, as the, the poem goes, God just chose and said, yep, up to this point and no further. And I know that there were people praying for me, which is just precious, so powerful, but I had no church experience um, at the time. You know, I'd been out for years. Uh, I had no Christian friends. Uh, I had no gospel message that I was listening to. The kindness of God opened my eyes. And I opened my eyes on that particular morning, and it's as if God allowed me to see Him afresh for who He is and to look into His face and to see Him his love and his goodness towards me. And I think because of the, of the way that God worked in my life in, in that particular story, my story of coming to faith and the joy that I found in him, I've always regarded salvation and this process of being reborn by the conviction and power and love of the Spirit as the greatest of miracles. You know, how does the heart of, of a hardened, skeptic atheist literally overnight get turned upside down and inside out and made soft to God's presence? Truly, only the Spirit of God can do that. And the book of Acts is, is full of incredible miracles. Miracles of God's empowering presence in the life of the early apostles and the disciples. And we, we're told just when you look up a, a definition of what a miracle is, it's an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. Oh, it's welcome, yes indeed. And we read in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and a couple of other places that the power to work, what the Bible calls signs and wonders, these miracles, comes from Jesus. We read that uh, in, uh, last week in Acts 2, how it was Jesus who was first filled with the Spirit and He then gives the Spirit to us who believe. And we're going to read about a healing uh, but healing is only one of the gifts that's mentioned, uh, certainly in the book of Acts. 
And there are many other gifts that God gives to empower his people. Some miracles are considered a little bit more wowy than others. Okay, a little bit more sparkle factor. But actually, every gift of God, even the gift of administration. Okay, and we're, man, we need that, Howard, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> is a gift, a spiritual gift, a miraculous gift from God. But ultimately, all of them stem from who He is, His goodness, His kindness towards us. So as we, we read this account, I'd like to ask you to read it with one eye on the sort of the softness of the way that God worked with me through my story. Keep that in mind as we we read through this. We don't just get kind of blindsided by the sparkles, sparkles. There's, there's a heart thing going on as well. But also, a little hint, listen or look out for reasons in the passage that you can see why God would use miracles in the early church. Okay? Look out for those reasons why God would allow the early church to perform miracles in this way. Okay, let's read Acts 3, and it's a bit of a chunky passage, 1 through 21, so let's go. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Hey, look at us. Look at me. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Yeah. But Peter said, Hey, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately, immediately his his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. Walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement with what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, that's classic, I would cling, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we've made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, whom you killed, the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also our, your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. It's a great passage. So good. Now, obviously, the miracle itself is captivating. I mean, it is. It's particularly awesome. And this is the story of the healing of a crippled man from birth. But there are 19 specific miracles mentioned in the book of Acts. And there are nine other kind of cluster of miracles where it just says, and many other miracles were done. Like, okay, so loads and loads. This book is full of healing. It's casting out demons. And often these things were common to Jesus, right? So his disciples would have known this. The people who were uh, familiar with Jesus would have known this. But what is different to one of the, or some of the 19 specific miracles in Acts are that some of them are miracles of warning. Things like the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Or the death, the horrible death, I might add, of Herod. Or the blinding of a couple of people in, in Acts, including Saul. So temporary blinding in order to learn something, in order to receive a grace from God and to change and to understand something fresh. But I'd like to, so don't put up this slide, please, um, Elliot. I want to ask you just to consider with your neighbor, if you would, what possible reasons you spotted out of this passage that explain why God would use miracles in the early church? Okay, you want to just take 30 seconds. Please have a chat with somebody, even if you're not next to them. Walk up to them, chat to them, introduce yourself. So you probably came up with one or two at least in the time I've given you. Could, who would be bold enough to just kind of throw out what you came up with? What did you come up with? Why are the reasons for the miracle in this passage? Draw people's attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? Show God's power. Yeah. Show God's heart. So good. Yeah. Any other? Quicker. The disciples got excellent. Yep. It's not about what we do. Yeah. Salvation is from Jesus. You nailed it. Well done. Let's go home. Awesome. So the 
There you go. These are the reasons that I came up with in the passage, um, and it looks exactly the right, like that. So give yourselves a round of applause. All right, so the reasons for, the, for the, at least this particular miracle that we can get out of the passage, that it authenticates Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. It authenticates the gospel message. It authenticates the apostles and the church. It authenticates a future hope. And it demonstrates the love of God. Isn't that beautiful? So, I'd love to just use this framework as we go through and look at, I suppose, miracles in general, but this specific one to help us understand what Jesus is up to, hopefully. So, let's look at the authenticating Jesus as the Christ. I think it's the first and probably most obvious outcome of this miracle is that Peter highlights Jesus as not just a miracle-working prophet, a good moral teacher, but as the Messiah, okay, the Savior of Israel, the Christ. You see, every Jew knew that any genuine miracle could only be done in the name of Yahweh, the name of God. Here we see Peter and John performing a genuine miracle, a genuine healing, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Scandalous. Notice how Peter confers the title Christ to Jesus. Christ means the anointed one, anointed of God. He is a man, yes, because he's of Nazareth. So there's the recognition of the humanity of Christ. But he is also the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of his people. And additionally, little phrases in there, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Okay? We're told he is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. God foretold by the mouths of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, which he has thus fulfilled. And finally, whom God raised from the dead. These are just wonderful phrases that all speak of the authentication that Jesus is not just a man, but he is God. And there's very little surprise, really, that Peter and John are arrested and taken to the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, after this incident, because claiming these titles for Jesus and then kind of doubling down on this by his name, having made this man well, it's absolute heresy in the eyes of the, their Jewish brothers. But to Peter and John, it's without a shadow of a doubt that, that this miracle continues to prove what they already knew. Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God multiple times. Jesus lived, and they knew it, a holy, righteous life. Jesus died a sinner's death. And he was then raised by the power of the Father from the dead. And these facts fueled their faith when they then saw how God authenticated Jesus 
as God through this miracle. The second point is it authenticates the gospel message. So the gospel is literally the good news, okay? the evangelion, the good news. And this is certainly good news in this passage. It's, it's not only good news for the man who was he, he, healed, yay, good news, but we are taught how to become right with God, the one who empowers miracles like this. Good news! It's a difference. Repent, therefore, we read, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So helpful. Repent and turn back, O Israel, from your hard-hearted, prideful, cultural, spirituality, and religiosity. This kind of religion benefits no one. The Christ, Jesus, He has been appointed to you, to you personally and to you corporately as the Messiah and Savior. Follow Him. In Him there is good news. In His name, through Him, our sins are blotted out as if they never existed. Hallelujah. That is good news. And verse 12, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made Him walk? I think we learn through this miracle the beautiful truth that it's not by force of will or the power of our own faith, that the gospel is applied to us. It's like in, in my story, I know, I know that God did all the work. He's the one who came to me, who opened my eyes, who softened my heart, who did the miracle in me. I had no part to play in that. And your story will be different. But it's no less true that it's not your will, your faith, your anything that allows the gospel to be true for you. This can also give us such dear confidence, friends, because it's not our own power, nor is it our piety, our holiness that makes the gospel relevant to us. You don't impress God with your piety. You can't earn God's love or favor. We know these things, but the miracles attest to it. So although those things are true, we desire to grow in holiness, not to somehow prove to God we are worthy of His love and His salvation, but because we are loved and we are saved. I was thinking of my relationship with my wife and my kids, I don't, uh, or they don't love me uh, because of stuff I do. That they love me because of who I am. And because they love me for who I am, I love to do things for them and become a better man. As a father and as a husband, I know that truth. 
That's freeing. It's liberating. It's the gospel truth as well. And we know it in our own lives, and it's here for us in our story. It's purely by the choice and the will of the utterly holy and pious Jesus, whose power over sin and death was forever sealed when he was raised from the dead. And that allows us to call Jesus Savior. He did the work. He sits in glory in the right hand of the Father. He chooses whose eyes to open when he says, hey, look at me. He chooses. He is the certainty of forgiveness and of the blotting out of sin. We don't come to church or we don't give loads of money. We don't serve on serving teams or be good people to somehow earn our salvation. We do it because He loves us. And because He loves us, we believe. We believe. Because He first reached out to us. The third point, authenticating the apostles and the church. And you might not offhand look at that passage and think, man, there's a lot in that about this point. But I, I think it's really telling that miracles are done by many people in Acts. Specifically the apostles. And we read in our passage about those who were witnesses to Jesus' life, his death, his, his resurrection, and his ascension to glory. And they were witnesses to that first initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as if tongues of fire had landed upon them. And as apostles, which literally means messengers, messengers of the good news, God had empowered them through this Holy Spirit to perform many signs and wonders. It's a phrase that we read all over Scripture. It's not in here. It's, not, it's, it's all over Acts, though, and in the Gospels. The miracles were literally signs and wonders. Signs, signposts. And they signposts to our previous two points of authentication, as well as to the fact that God was now publicly acknowledging the apostles and the early church as His people, empowered by His presence, by the Holy Spirit. I think it's telling. Initially, the early church did life as Jews. We read in our passage about Peter and John going to the temple at the ninth hour at 3 p.m., which was the, the daily sacrifice, with their Jewish brothers. They just continued doing life as per normal. But as time goes on, God makes it clear to them by the stuff that starts happening in their lives and their relationship with the broader uh, Jewish culture and Jewish people, but also by His Spirit that, that the church, the ecclesia, like Howard spoke about last week, the gathering of Jesus' people are different to the Jews. And if miracles never happened Crowds would never have gathered to hear the preached word like this sermon from Peter. And they never would have stood out as the authentic people of God's presence by the Holy Spirit with the authentic message that Jesus is the authentic Messiah who offers authentic salvation. God's plan to use miracles in this way 
to authenticate both the apostles and the early church obviously worked. Because uh, after the dust settles on this little scandal of Peter and John's, there are 5,000 men and additional women and children as part of the church in Jerusalem. Previous chapter, 3,000 men were baptized and filled with the Spirit, and women and children, additional. Now we're sitting at 5,000. So what happened here, one miracle, one sermon from Peter, boom. Miracles prove that Jesus loves His church. Although I said that uh, going to church doesn't qualify us for God's love in us and, and salvation, I think having a poor view of the church, which can be highlighted through a poor connection to the church, it could demonstrate a poor understanding of the beautiful, supernatural, Holy Spirit-empowered, Jesus-centered gathering, the church. And so what a moment as we consider miracles to reconsider our view of the miraculous thing that is our invitation to the local church. How precious. Point four, the authenticating of a future hope. I don't know about you, but my mind goes to some wonderful places when I consider the idea of miracles. And this is probably one of the, the most exciting ones for me in some ways. Repent, therefore, we read in, in verse 19, uh, that your sins may be blotted out, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Considering again that miracles are events that seem to break or circumvent the laws of science and nature, miracles really quite excite me. It, they excite me because by doing so, God proves that He's not only willing to intervene. Like, we, we know God, Jesus' heart is lovely and sweet. But if that's where it ended, Christianity would have ended 2,000 years ago. Miracles indicate that God is not only tender and loving and willing toward His people, but He is able. He is powerful and He is able. If God can make a crippled man from birth rise up and walk, Immediately, right? That phrase, so important. Do you know what needs to happen for that to mean immediately? Bones need to be strengthened. Muscles need to be strengthened and created. Tendons, sinews, nerves, brain neural pathways, muscle memory, and then the will to get up and try it. Guys, that is... All new. All new. It's a moment of breakthrough where God says, I'll make it new. And I believe that the trajectory of all of creation is heading towards a day when Jesus will come back from His place of honor where He sits on the right hand of the Father and make all things beautifully 
and gloriously new again. As those who, by faith, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, His resurrection is proof of our resurrection to come. His being in the Father's presence is proof of us being welcomed in the Father's presence for all eternity. And so everything is coming in line. The moment is coming near where the time is right to make all things new and we can be in the presence of the Father for all time because of Jesus. Peter tells of this moment of restoring all the things about which God had spoken by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. This is Isaiah, 600 years earlier. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered and come into mind. Wow, blotting out. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Oh, hallelujah. It surely sounds like a passage like this that Peter has got in mind when he is giving this great speech, this great preach in Acts 3. Miracles in the name of Jesus Christ are proof that God will bring a moment when this life, this earth, this heavens to pass away. And He will make all things new. And He will be with us. And we will no longer be plagued by this mortal imperfect body and its pains, but we will be in a new resurrected glorious body as Christ had. And we will put this on and we will be holy for all eternity. That we will be with Him in this new heavens and this new earth. Church, this is the ultimate good news that everything else is compared to. Daniel Charlesworth, uh, a couple of weeks ago over our summer series uh, in Psalms, he mentioned that the good news of the gospel is only understood to be good when compared to the horror of the alternatives an eternity outside of God's goodness. Oh, the horror of that. Miracles are one of the ways which Jesus himself pleads with those whom he has chosen to open our eyes and to see that being with God And choosing daily to follow Him is better than anything else in all of creation. The same creation that is passing away. No job, no money, no girls or boys, no achievements, no honors can compare in any way to the greatness of knowing the love of God through Christ Jesus. The final point, authenticating God's love for people. Let's not forget a most obvious point from our passage. Jesus is God. Yes. Okay, we got that. Boom. Jesus appoints and empowers apostles and the church. Yes. Got it. We're going to heaven. Future hope. Tech. Got it. Magnificent. Glorious. 
But don't miss that Jesus healed a man. Honestly, if all Jesus wanted to do was authenticate the apostles or the message or the church, he could have done it in any uh, multiple other ways. But he chooses to heal a man and do him good and bring joy and blessing to him and everyone who knew him or was around him. And God does this time and time and time and time and time again. Dear friends, miracles are one of the ways of God saying to his people, I love you. I care deeply for you. You are my precious people. I am your God. Don't miss this incredible truth. You know, as we go through acts, fireworks. Don't miss this incredible truth. Let it warm our hearts. Let it put faith in our bones. This truth that God loves us. Let it open us up to this refreshing. Times of refreshing that we read about. Since God surely desires to do you good. So that you too may go like this man. Walking and leaping and praising God. If you've maybe wondered all the way through this message, hey, ha haven't miracles ceased? Why don't we see more of them? What's going on? Didn't they stop with the first century church? Because if that's the case, all points I've just made are kind of meaningless. So what is going on? No. I believe... Theologically and experientially, that God still does miracles today. I believe that God still heals. I believe God still sets people free from demonic influence. I believe the gifts of the Spirit are still active and powerful today. And they are still at work in the people of God, His church, through the empowering Holy Spirit. Just listen to the church father, Augustine, who was, uh, he was at a time a really, he was a self-professed kind of skeptic. And here he is around 400 years after Jesus talking about miracles in the city of Hippo. He says, a miracle that happened at Milan while I was there when a blind man had his sight restored. I've been concerned that such accounts should be published because I saw that signs of divine power like those of the older days were frequently occurring in modern times too. Many miracles have occurred here. And to my knowledge, a uh, certain knowledge, many miracles have occurred there which are not recorded in the published documents. And nearly 70 of these documents have been produced at the time of writing. Okay, so this is 400 years after. There are great stories of miracles all the way through the church. Some of them are a bit, who knows? But some of them are genuine, powerful, miraculous works of God, without a doubt. So I would say, no, absolutely, the power of the Spirit continues through the first century church, through the time of Augustine, through the time of the Catholic Church to which we owe so very much, through the time of the Reformation, to the time that we find ourselves today. 
I think all four points that we made, or I suppose five, but the top four, as to the reasons for God empowering miracles were that we're so much more critical in the moments in the t- that first century time when the church was being birthed, when it, it needed that absolute supernatural help to s- literally stay alive. And they needed it in some ways so much more than we do now. We now have the scriptures. We now have these tales, these stories, these historical accounts. We have the Holy Spirit. We have one another. And the gospel has much work to still do in reaching the ends of the earth. But truly, much of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth have been reached and have heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the need to use miracles in the regular, big, boom, fireworks ways that, that we don't see today in as many, or as frequently as we did back then, to a human level, I understand that. I understand that. And maybe this explains why we are seeing less miracles today. Maybe God doesn't need to. We can rely on His Scriptures. But... God first. We can earnestly seek God, ask Him to act on our behalf and on the behalf of others. We must ask God to heal others. We must ask God to speak prophetically to us and to one another. We must ask God to set us and people free from demonic influences. We must ask God to do miracles. However, as we do this, We don't seek the gift as much as we seek the giver. We do not seek the miracle as much as we seek the God of miracles. He's the author of life. In Him is fullness of joy forevermore. Truly, our salvation is our greatest miracle. But I was... Privileged, and I'll be landing here. I was privileged to pray for a family friend about two years ago who um, came to the house. Uh, his name is Ian. And he asked me to pray with him, anoint him with oil, trust God to heal him for prostate cancer. This is the final part of Ian's written testimony that he sent me some time ago. There is certainly a whole lot more to this testimony, but as part of the testament scheduled by Dr. Uh, sorry, treatment scheduled by Dr. Chakraborty, he had arranged a follow-up telephone consultation on Wednesday the 19th of May for 1400. And late that afternoon, he rang asking whether we could change it to a face-to-face consultation. Talk about ye of little faith. Immediate anxiety sets in, although in fairness and to carry his wife's credit, she'd stood firm and said we were not to be rocked by this, but to stand firm knowing that we have an amazing God who loves us. Moreover, all this despite me being aware that my latest PSA results had continued to decline and was now down to 0.15. That doesn't mean a lot to me. Maybe to some of you that means something. Reasons for the face-to-face change Dr. Chakraborty had 
looked at this latest MRI scan, which was clear, showed nothing, and he wanted to suggest we stop chemotherapy. To be clear on just how amazing this was, the treatment I had had up to that moment was only designed to stop or slow down the growth. Praise the Lord, he writes, O my soul. Praise his holy name. Thank you, Lord, for all you have done. To God be the glory. Isn't that wonderful what miracles do? This morning, Jesus invites us to look up. Look up. Peter and John saying to the crippled man, look up. Catch me in the eye. As he says, that which I have, I give to you. Receive it. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.